Hello. Uh, welcome to the Kitch Fork Podcast. I am your co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I am your co-host, Max Cohen. And this is an anti-nostalgic look back at the website and reviews and writing contained therein of Pitchfork Media and indie music in general of the aughts. Yes, and the anti-nostalgia part on this episode for me is going to be, I think, the hardest we do in this entire series. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So today we're looking at the seminal, depending on who you (laughs) talk to, uh, (laughs) album Turn On The Bright Lights by Interpol from the year 2002, released on Matador Records. And I mentioned that because that ends up factoring into uh, the Pitchfork review, among other things. Um, Yeah. So I will ask you right out, what is your experience with this particular album? Um, immediate and lifelong. Like before the album came out, I remember hearing the single for PDA and being like completely blown away. I, you know, at the time I was like kind of barely get kind of right then getting into like post-punk and being like, oh, there's a lot of bands I like certain songs of, but don't really like their albums. Um, in this genre and then uh, Interpol has a song he's like oh this is like all those songs I like um, and then I think I saw them on David Letterman playing Obstacle 1 I was like this is the best, best song I've ever heard you know I would have been like what 13 uh, and got the album for my birthday like a couple months later and it is, it became very quickly like such a deeply favorite album that uh, and then and then antics as well that I have internalized it to the point where there are things about music I love that I can't tell if I like the album because it represents those things or if I love those things because I loved the album mm-hmm. um and also it's like you know deeply influenced even like the music I put out to this day like it's we're going to get into it I think there's a lot of flaws about the album but it's also like it's one of those this band changed your life albums for me okay that makes sense yeah so i i actually did hear this album when i was in high school um i can't remember exactly the context i think my brother had bought it or whatever because there was a lot of hype around this album yeah you know we were talking about it in the context of the shins on the previous episode but that album, I think, around that time sold, like, I don't know, 100,000 copies. This album ended up going gold eventually, yeah. you know, which is 5,000 copies. Five, sorry, 5,000. 5, 500,000 copies. Without uh, being on a Zach, Brack mo- Zach Braff movie. Yeah. Yeah. So this album was big. Uh, Pitchfork gave it, like, a 9.5. Although, um, although, and this happened later, they did have a song in Friends. Oh, wow. Well, I was not watching Friends at that point. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, I think I was a little too old for it at that point. But um, yeah, so I had the... Uh, I had the I had the CD somehow, um, and I listened to it, and I, I liked it. Um, I didn't have any context for the band at all. I didn't know what they looked like. Uh, so, which you know was probably helped um, yes. just with the general uh, atmosphere of kind of you know dark mystery around mm-hmm. the album, and like you know how and 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 the uh, cover art really contributed to that. It just is like you know. 
uh, a stark black background and this red sort of lit, uh, I don't know, it looks like a screen or something. It always reminded me of... It, it's similar color palette to like Radiohead albums of the time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Which for is sure. like, w- was good for me because I was super into Kid A and Amnesiac. So anything that looked like it was a musical error, even in the most superficial ways, I was like already on board for. Um, but yeah, I liked it. And then I didn't really follow them after that. I didn't really think much about it. Um, I remember them being talked about kind of as a, a, you know, one album wonder. I know Antics did pretty well, but people... And I'll defend it. I think Antics is a great album. Um, I think they really started losing it at um, Our Love to Admire. Okay. But yeah, I never really followed them after that. I guess I... I don't know. I tended to just follow albums that were well reviewed, especially at the time when I was like a teen. So I didn't really. Um, and then you know, I remember people hearing talking about like or hearing people talk about like um, the that the lyrics were bad and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't really think much about it. And then very recently, um, uh, there was that uh, Pitchfork rescored article that we <laughs> I'm sure we can get into um, where they like you know unofficially <laughs> rescored a lot of their old reviews or you know a ch- not like a lot of them but like I don't know 10 or 15 of them and Interpol made the cut and it was one of the ones with they they knocked down from a 9.5 to a 7.0 and I can read right. that later but just like reflecting on it yeah the album hasn't really lingered with me and i do have a problem with the lyrics and i i I guess i have pretty mixed feelings about interpol but reading about the whole like new york scene that they came out of and uh just like the history of this album you know in the last week or so has definitely made me like them uh less as a band (laughs) oh yeah and it, it was true at the time you know i so i was like a diehard fan and i was trying to find material on them and i remember like q magazine had a big feature on them and it was like a bunch of interviews with them on tour and they sounded like the worst people at as a teenager i didn't think they were cool i thought they sounded like assholes um and i wanted to not think of them that way like it's it's hard i think with a lot of these new york scene bands a lot of whom i loved you know um yeah yeah, yeah as liars even the strokes to a certain degree uh the less you know the better um mm-hmm. because a lot of what makes like the more you know about them as people the less their music the harder it is to love their music you know <laughs> not even because they're like it's not like cuz they're like causing violence in their community or whatever but they are kind of just assholes that i wouldn't want to be around <laughs> yeah i i think in this case um we're especially talking about paul banks and carlos dengler just the worst <laughs> as the focal points cuz the other two members uh, daniel kessler and um sam fogarino sam fogarino seem fine but um, yeah, I mean, Sam, Sam was in his 30s when the band started and they were all in their 20s. And like, I think he's always been fairly chill. And Daniel Kessler just never talks in interviews, which I think is smart. Yeah, it seems like the savviest member. Um, mm-hmm. So d- do you want to talk about uh, sort of your uh, impressions of the, the history of the band or whatever? I can also talk about, um, you know, some from this article that Pitchfork ran in 
I think it was 2012 about the history of Turn On the Bright Lights, which made researching this pretty easy because they have a, a comprehensive article uh, interview about it. But um, I, I didn't I didn't do a lot of research, but let me see how much I can remember. Um, as I recall, a lot of it, it all started with Daniel Kessler mm -hmm. um, and who, who just was making this like music on his own and sort of drew in people around him. So like he. Um, he was a or no he was approaching people right he like went up yeah to i think he was people looking he thought, for he, he people he thought looked cool to try and start a band yeah and i i know that um like carlos for example i don't think had played music before and mm -hmm. and i that's kind of how he ended up on bass he said something like oh god his his quotes are all really insufferable i'm going to there, see if there's I can this find thing it. i went to grad school for like poetry right which you know, forgive me, please. Um, <laughs> but a lot of like poets I meet have this thing where everything they say has to be poetic. Like even in conversation, everything <laughs> yes. has to be like florid and awful. Um, and that's what Carlos Dengler reminds me of. Like this person who thinks everything he says needs to be this grand Gothic quote. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's the quote. He says, but I came to NYU determined to be a scholar. I was very focused on my major, which was philosophy. If you had stopped me on the street when I arrived at NYU in 1996 and asked me, Hey man, what's your plan? I would have been like, well, I'm going to graduate from NYU with honors and then find a grad school for continental philosophy. I want to read books for the rest of my life and be really fucking smart. And no one's going to be able to tell me what to think or say because I'm going to be able to unravel whatever they think they know. Oh, God. He would have been he would have been all right. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I mean, given <laughs> given the intersection of uh, Vice Media with this whole scene and Gavin mm -hmm. McGinnis, the founder of Vice Media, uh, obviously being the founder of the Proud Boys, I don't think that there's a <laughs> I think that there's a pretty clear connection, especially given some of the outfits that Carlos would wear. Uh, <laughs> some of <the> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Some of those interesting uh, armbands that he decided to wear for a while. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's it's so funny because it feels like constructed. Uh, it feels like a band constructed with intent, um, which I think maybe feeds into some of their, like, early on their, their image of, like, precision and coldness. You know, they wore suits all the time even like yes. San Fogarino a very chaotic drummer wore a suit while drumming um and like they had this they they were very image conscious uh in a way that you know works really well as a teen and kind of seems insufferable when you look back on it I mean it's kind of a um a 60s mod revival in terms of the aesthetics that was like very much the aesthetics of sort of mod culture in especially yeah. like London in the 60s and a lot of these um post-punk revival bands are extremely like anglophile um which is interesting I I made a tweet <laughs> I made a tweet uh before I decided to uh suspend my Twitter momentarily um uh I made a tweet about how the New York City post-punk revival scene of the two, of the aughts, which this comes out of and is a, a, a pretty big um, a totemic work of, um, 
is kind of like my mu- musical arch nemesis because as a as a teen i don't know somebody who was like getting into a little bit more you know progressive music a little bit more like um you know things like radiohead or the flaming lips and stuff and like those bands had become very like sonically adventurous and kind of mm-hmm. making lots of different kinds of music. So to go from that to like rock music where the guitar riffs are just like, <laughs> it just was like, okay, this isn't really my thing. I don't really get it. Uh, and I didn't really have any affection for like that idea of the rock star, but they certainly did at the time. And I think part of that um, comes from the fact that indie music uh, especially indie rock, indie rock music in the '90s became very associated with grunge, and it became very associated with a certain kind of like uh, sensibility and aesthetic, which was like kind of very, um, very like kind of laid back and like very casually dressed, casually presented. And it shunned the rock star in a lot of ways. Yeah, it shunned the rock star, and you were in. It was not cool to like talk yourself up at all. So there was almost like kind of a performative modesty to to that whole scene. Right. And I think that's what some people in the New York scene were reacting against. I know that there's a quote from James Murphy, who is probably the least modest person in the history of the world. Um, right. Uh, Meet me in the bathroom. The book, which has a very well-known book which kind of chronicles this era um he's like he's like basically fuck that like we should have rock stars and stuff like that so that was the attitude at the time the other part of it is that i think um dance music was finally sort of becoming absorbed into the fold and i think part of that is just because a lot of people in meet me in the bathroom were saying like a lot of these indie rock shows which and i think this is still a problem to today people would just kind of stand around and it didn't look like they were enjoying the music very much and it was kind of a bummer to like you know perform and go to those kinds of shows yeah one thing that i i will say indisputably about indie music during the post-punk revival or the nyc scene revival is that Interpol accepted, funnily enough. Live shows got a lot more fun. You know, like, yeah, 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 and Liars put on some of the best, like, live shows I've ever seen. There's something to be said about, like, reclaiming the performative aspect of music being a better show, and especially in a scene like New York, where a lot of it was, like, the live shows you were putting on um, early on before it, like, exploded. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a sense of, like, Oh, performative is a good thing. I mean, people are enjoying themselves at the show. Um, that then becomes this sort of when you're perf- being performative, not on stage, but in your life and your music too, <laughs> like as part of a weird marketing campaign. That's I think when it becomes a little insufferable. But um, I think people wanted it. I mean, I think one of the reasons like the Strokes blew up isn't because their music was revolutionary, but because they were sleazy rock stars mm-hmm. who, were pre- who were pretty and had money, I guess. Um, and we hadn't had those in a while. Yeah, the Strokes really blew up and they became kind of the focal point of the scene, which their legacy ends, ends up being pretty complicated because I think even at the time, there was a little bit of a backlash to them. Absolutely uh, there was, yeah. Yeah. Because England went nuts over them. Like that, this... Uh, that first single one single uh which was i think like modern age and uh new york city cops um hailed as the 
savior of rock and roll. Yeah, well, and that is very much uh, things that the British press have done for a long time. I think the yep. musical climate in the UK is much more like, you know, glomming on to whatever they think is the next big thing oh, in yeah. a very I, like quick and rapid way as opposed I've, to in the US. I've long maintained that British music journalism is the lowest form of literature. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that I was going to say is I said on Twitter that the this scene was my nemesis, the, the New York City um, post-punk revival. But I should have really specified that I think on the whole, it's pretty hard to argue that uh, the New York City didn't get the better of music from the post-punk revival scene. Because like the British post-punk revival scene, outside of like Franz Ferdinand or whatever, like, you know, maybe one or two other bands, like, damn, it's pretty dire. <laughs> Yeah, who who's remembering the bravery in this day and age? Uh, the Let's Libertines, the, the Libertines, the Kaiser Chiefs. Uh, there's so out. many. The Fratellis. Oh God, I forgot about the Fratellis. I did. I do remember really liking the Future Heads uh, cover of Hounds of Love, though. That was good. Okay, well, now it's become cool to cover Hounds of Love and everyone and their mother likes. If if you are, um, I'm sure both of us can say this, if you are a trans woman and you do not like Kate Bush, <laughs> your, your card has <laughs> to be revoked at this point in time, which it's I feel kind of yeah. sad because I don't want to put that pressure on people, but I do also really like Kate Bush. They, they, cut, they, they cut off your HRT. It's really, it's really mean. Yeah. Um, it wasn't true at the time, though. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think she was that cool at the time. Neither was neither were bands like the Smiths or whatever, uh, no. which, again, but, uh, you know, now it's obviously cool. What I was going to say was, um, this is from the Pitchfork, uh, you know, uh, 10th anniversary um, article about Turn on the Bright Lights. It says, favoring suits and severe haircuts, Interpol developed a sartorial aesthetic that flew in the face of the jeans and leather jacket style pervading New York and rock as a whole at the time. And then it says, Paul Banks says, we took the look seriously. I think every band should. To phone in any facet of the artistic idea is contrary to my overall <laughs> philosophy. God, I hate that man. Yeah, and then Chris Lombardi of Matador Records also says, that's how they rolled and it wasn't a bad look. It's not like they were wearing clown suits. They were well-behaved gentlemen, which was refreshing. Um, one thing I want to say, well, before we move on from the the scene as a whole is, some, so one of, the, one of the things I did look at while I was doing research was like uh, the also-rans, the, the Interpol uh, you know, also rants. And I found this interview for a band called Elephant that nobody but me remembers. Um, that from a Nitsa Bebe that like, I think really captures the mood of encountering this scene and how like, I, how I felt at the time. And I think how a lot of people felt when the scene was coming up, which is that uh, this is the, the full quote. Uh, at 14 years old, I daydreamt about this sort of thing. I imagined that by the time I hit my late 20s, a wave would have kicked up. A group's made up of people my age who'd been listening to the same records I had. Indie rockers weaned on floofy English moaners like Morrissey and the Psychedelic Furs and the masculine American energy of Dinosaur Jr. or the Pixies. Indie rockers who understood both the charm of romantic British new wave pop and the rush of American guitar fetish snap and jangle. Indie rockers who could crank those things together and maybe... Uh, and run them through a decade's progress into into something all fresh and glistening. Maybe even indie rockers who shared bashful soft spots for the Sisters of Mercy and the Ocean Blue. All this, I figured, the second coming of college or postmodern rock would be my time. And 
I think there's something to be said for, you know, again, that it's, it's part of the cycle of nostalgia, but also for somebody like me, who's like a good decade younger than, than the writer, uh, being really into bands like, you know, um, the chameleons or new order or, um, the psychedelic furs and being kind of sad that nobody did that music anymore or was iterating on that music anymore. This kind of felt like, um, Oh wow. Okay. Finally in my time, there's music that's like, hasn't forgotten the kind of cool things this genre did and is trying to move forward with it. Um, yeah, it, it, it felt more, it, this is a funny way of saying it felt revolutionary at the time. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> I agree with you about post-punk music of the late seventies and early eighties. There's some tremendously interesting, you know, really conceptually interesting, really like it broke a lot of musical boundaries. I think mo mm -hmm. uh, post-punk is a, is a favored genre of music geeks and uh, uh, in general, just because, um, it was a very productive period and then it kind of just ended and got absorbed into, you know, new wave and, and dance music and all that. So there is kind of like a lost <laughs> Eden or something there for <laughs> the prelapsarian world of the, of the goths and the, the industrial heads. But I, I feel like, it, and, and I, and I think that was probably even stronger in America than it probably was in the UK, funnily enough, because the yeah. UK really embraced, uh, dance music to the extent that, uh, America never really has. Um, nope. so that is also why kind of the stronger energy behind that, uh, the revival scene came from New York and not the UK. But I also think there's an element of diminishing returns to some of this, um, in that like a lot of like post-punk music was very political, um, and, uh, had like at least some kind of interesting perspectives on music and was kind of coming from a place of really trying to not do really trying to do something that hadn't been done before right. and you can't say that about post-punk revival well it's it's funny the the post-punk revival bands that i think lasted are the ones who did do that so like liars yeah continually pushed forward. i i love that uh the apple drop i listened to that album a ton uh mm -hmm. that came out last year or the it's year before. so good it's great and and they were doing it like right away like they immediately started pushing into like no wave and ambient and stuff like that Whereas like something like Interpol, where I feel like the first couple of Interpol albums felt like establishing, moving forward with a post-punk sound and then refining on it. The reason why Interpol, why you dropped off, why most people dropped off and why um, I think they don't matter anymore is they never moved forward. Yeah. There. They've been trying to remake, you know, Turn on the bright like they didn't even like take the lessons from antics. They've been trying to remake Turn on the Bright Lights for like a couple decades now, and it's it's that you're right, it's diminishing returns. It's getting worse and worse. Well, I think that's the problem when bands blow up like that, uh mm -hmm. you know, in their first album, and there's so much acclaim around a specific time and place and scene. This happens a lot, and I think it's also a problem with the sort of pitchfork model of like these you know putting weight behind bands where um you know they they matter so much to the context of the time or whatever but then it's hard for them to sustain that and you know people's interest and stuff goes elsewhere um mm -hmm. and i i think that's always 
really been a problem with um, any kind of band that blows up. I mean, perfect example of this happened all the time in the UK. I mean, um, what a, what's that fucking band in the late late eighties that everyone in the UK loves, but only had like one good out. I can't even remember their name. That that uh, describes so many bands. <laughs> yeah, <please. laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I can't remember their name, but uh, any. I think they had like a song called "I Wanna Be Adored." Oh, Stone Roses. The Stone Roses. Yeah. Yep. That's a perfect example of a flash in the pan band. Really like half a good album, if we're being honest. <laughs> um, well, what I wanted to say with Interpol is they were kind of like, they were, apparently they were like no one's really favorite band in the New York City scene. I don't think that they were as well known, like, uh, you know, when bands were sort of coming up. Part of that is they were all pretty young, except for Sam Fogarino, who kind right. of joined the band you know, before Turn on the Bright Lights, but a little later, they were all pretty young, like in their early 20s, uh, coming out of college. But yeah, I just wanted to finish the story of them getting um, signed to Matador. <laughs> um, so, you know, they eventually got hype sort of started to uh, happen when they played uh, a appeal session over in the UK. Like they played some shows in the UK as like buzz around this scene was increasing, which is like such a, a, a universal thing. If you've read like yep. so many bands that blew up in the US, like including grunge bands went to the UK and the UK, you know, the magazines buzzed about them. And that's what kind of granted them uh, the hype and legitimacy to blow up in the US. Right. But yeah, they did that. Machine. Yeah, totally. It's the yeah, it's the machine of the media there, and like I don't know, there's more resources invested in in kind of like putting British identity behind specific musical artists. It's also smaller, and I yeah. think they, they they get a kick out of being like, oh, we understood this American band that America could, was too dumb to get. <laughs> yeah, um, which was that was like a big thing with Nirvana, as I recall. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, like Mud Honey was a band that got a bunch of buzz before you know Nirvana blew up in in the UK specifically in the whole grunge <laughs> look. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, from that uh, twenty or tenth anniversary interview. This is Chris Lombardi from Matador Records. He says the first time they stepped in, I I don't think they were all wearing suits, but Paul was wearing a suit. They were really fucking deadly serious. <laughs> Um, Sam Fogarino says the situation was totally diffused when we saw how awkward Chris and Gerard were. That's Gerard Cosloy, the founder right. of Matador Records. Sitting down at a conference table was nobody's forte. It was kind of uncomfortable, and I broke the ice by talking about an old Belter Space Record robot world that they released in the early 90s. Shout out to Belter Space. Yeah, right. New Zealand uh, music legends. Um, good, I actually, good, good album. Yeah, I actually like that album quite a bit, yeah. so that was a good poll from Sam. Uh, he says, the next thing you, kn you know, we're talking about possibilities. Um, and Chris Lombardi says, it was different than any meeting we ever had before. It felt like I was in a board meeting. Like there were four businessmen who happened to be in the business of making music and who were very serious about their art. I think that really <laughs> goes to the heart of like the differences between this, like the attitudes of like this New York music scene and like indie stuff that had come before it. Um, yep. And Matador is kind of at the center of a lot of this. Um, there, there are kind of the independent label du jour, or at least especially were in the nineties and two thousands and they are independently owned, but you know, it's, 
<laughs> I don't know. It's like they're they're a big indie. You know, they have huge influence in the industry. There was a point when I think, I think it was Sony owned like part of the label, but then they bought it back. I don't yeah, know. It, it's a little like you know we just did the shins. It's a little like Sub Pop. Yeah. Um, you know, one of those like tentpole indie labels that like is really more of like a mid like it's somewhere between like indie and like major label at this point totally uh yeah capital records purchased a 49 percent stake in 1996 but then lombardi and cosley bought it back in 1999 um so yeah but anyway um so that was yeah they got signed to matador um this album had been in the works for a pretty significant period of time. There are a bunch mm-hmm. of early EPs you could find. Like, um, they put, I think, most of that stuff on the like 10th anniversary re-release. Um, they did. There is there are some early. This is this is going back. There are some like early demos and like live recordings going around file sharing sites too. <laughs> Interesting, but yeah, I mean the the demos that you hear in the peel sessions the the music all sounds pretty similar i mean most of the pieces are there um it's just like the band hasn't quite gelled yet like sometimes the takes are kind of slower it's kind of hard to describe because it sounds pretty much the same but there's like something a little bit missing in some of those demos to me to me it's that the rhythm section hasn't kicked in yet Mm -hmm. um like i i love the guitars in these albums and and i think there's a lot to say but i would say that like without like you know sam fogarino and carlos dangler like really locked in kind of chaotic um rhythm background um it's the the that's what really powers them and especially it, it doesn't help that stuff like you know song seven and a time to be so small are pretty like slow or pretty mid-tempo Interpol songs you know like I love them but they are not exciting um oh yeah no it was PDA NYC say hello to the angels um specialist which I like but is a very goofy song uh to be six minutes long um yeah I don't know there there's just there is a a fire in the rhythm section and I think here's the other thing I think the mixing and mastering on turn on the bright lights and antics are impeccable um and those are also missing from the eps yeah um, yeah they like recorded um there's sorry, a punching there's a punch and clarity to the albums that in the eps feels sort of grim and sludgy yeah um they recorded the album in uh i think bridgeport connecticut they like took um and apparently that was uh that was very much with the objection of of carlos dangler who did who wanted to he didn't want to see any uh fucking trees or anything he's like i want to be a city dweller um and uh yeah so in this band like uh paul banks and carlos were kind of the ones who were like the partiers who were you know doing lots of cocaine and um and drinking and everything like that and i i mean that was cocaine was like very big in that scene at the time uh Mm -hmm. in general um but it's (laughs) very much a part of the story of the band especially for those two guys um i think daniel kessler and sam fogarino are a little more bit more straight sam was older he's apparently Mm -hmm. would cook meals for the rest of the band like kind of like their uh their father or whatever figure um 
when they were recording it. But yeah, so the album was recorded by I'm gonna look this up. Uh, Peter Cottis, Peter Cottis, yes. and Gareth Jones. That's um, right. So yeah, I think it was Peter Cottis's. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, studio. Um, and they're like they're like big. They're not. These aren't like indie music names, you know. Like Gareth Jones is like a Depeche Mode guy. Um, like was like really big for producing like a lot of the albums that this scene came out of. Um, and, you know, Peter Cottis is like an indie, an indie music kind of institution. The kind of guy who's like, if you look at his associated acts on Wikipedia, it's just every indie band because so many people used his studio. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So, uh, this is something that Peter Peter Cottis is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Okay. I've never heard it out loud. <laughs> We'll say Peter Cottis. This is something that he said in the 10th anniversary interview. He said, there's something grand about the record. It's an odd mixture, kind of a crappy sounding and lo-fi and sludgy in ways, but it also sounds great. People talked about the luscious sound of the reverb. That's one of the first things that I noticed about this album, you know, when it mm-hmm. came out was the reverb. Cause like fucking the strokes, like it's so dry, you know, so and like dry. a lot of music of that era is so dry, but like music that I liked, like Radiohead was always like drenched in reverb so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons like it hit me initially um, I didn't even really see Interpol as being I, I think I kind of bought the line that a lot of people did that they're like uh, you know even if you don't like the Strokes you're gonna like this band you know but um, and th- they're a very different band <laughs> yeah but yeah in terms of like the, the New York City scene even though I had like a, a really adverse reaction to that scene to the extent that I knew about it when I was a teen, like, you know, Interpol was an exception to that, you know, until more recently, which I kind of, I don't like it as much now. But um, yeah, he, Peter says, people talked about the luscious sound of the reverb, but it's fucking literally almost the cheapest reverb sound. These guys came in with their little Alesis microverbs. Cheaper reverbs have a sound that is darker and messier and cooler. And that's part of what gives the drums such a spank. Without that little uh, $50 piece of gear, the record would have sounded totally different. I thought that was a cool anecdote. Yeah, one fucking pretentious cat is. And Elisa's microverb is still a rack unit. It's not that bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, like uh, uh, Slow Dive used to use a, a unit kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's it's just, it's not studio quality reverb. It's the kind of reverb you would have on a pedal board. And I think that's why it sounds good is because it sounds like an effect and not like you're trying to simulate a room or a hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my general reaction to this uh, album is it sounds really good. I have no complaints about the way that the album sounds like the, the reverb is like really appropriate. Like it, and it doesn't be, even though the guitars are playing that annoying, like uh, <laughs> trendy uh, guitar lines of like, you know, early two thousands where they're just playing like over and over again, at least there's reverb and they're like layered in an interesting way. Yeah. But in, and the, in the bass, the, the rhythm section sounds really fucking good. And I think that is, uh, it's hard to, uh, to dis, dis discount like how good uh the rhythm section of interpol is like on this album and in general at least when carlos was there like he is a really fucking good bassist um which is kind of 
Uh, I say that begrudgingly because he seems like, yeah, not the greatest he, human, but. He's an interesting bassist, and I think he and Sam work really well together as a rhythm section. First, my defense of the guitars. Um, I think what works about the guitars in Interpol is they don't have a specific lead or rhythm guitarist. And so mm. instead, like the guitars are allowed to kind of work together to make some really interesting textures. And I think you can, you know, with something like the strokes, you have one guy playing like one chord over and over and over again, um, which I still like. I'm not going to pretend that I don't and um, that we have different tastes here. But also like in Interpol, what you'll have is they're playing kind of slightly different chords that create an interesting texture, you know, like Daniel will be playing sevenths while um, Paul is playing like a straight power chord and they have this rub together with the reverb that has a really nice texture to it that you can hear a lot like in the bridge of inner in the bridge of PDA. something like Leif Erikson um, it works together as sort of a uh, almost like a synth pad together that I really love I really mm -hmm. love the sound of those things together uh, yeah I would, I would I would say if it was just the guitars if they had a regular rhythm section and in fact the albums post Carlos Dingler have a problem I don't think it would work as well yeah I mean I, I will say I think the appeal of this band if you like them is kind of a uh, greater than the sum of its parts thing um, sure. I think there there isn't like one creative voice it's kind of the the combination of things and the fact that they you know work as a band um, yeah so it I, I the thing I was going to say about you mentioned PDA that song is kind of like their <laughs> their new slang or something yeah. like that's the song that they had around for a long time and it was the first uh, single as I recall yeah, it was the first single, and it was also the one that I think they wrote like in the in a very early stages of the band that sort of kept around, and it's one of their most identifiable songs still. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's um. Oh, I had something I was gonna say, and I lost it. Oh, yeah, the interesting thing about like the shared vision is Interpol's one of the few bands where I don't know who's writing the songs. Yeah, I suspect I it's Daniel. Yeah. Um, but they've never made it clear uh, and they're credited to all four members equally. It's a very like REM kind of situation, which is interesting for the scene, you know, where it's very much about these bigger than life I, personalities. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that honestly maybe um, has both helped them and hurt them in yes. that like, I it seems like they develop from like his guitar lines or whatever, like the what happens with the song kind of flows out from that and the vocals are kind of uh <laughs> uh whether you like them or not uh depend, uh kind of flowing out from that um but um and that kind of helps their appeal as this kind of critical darling in versus something like the strokes which is much more like pop song oriented. So right. it helps like credit, you know, it helps like the pitchforks at the time push this and be like, Hey, this isn't like pop music, you know, this is like its own thing. Um, Even though it is a little bit pop music. It is a little bit, but it's, th <laughs> there's kind of like a shoegaze post rock element to it that I think is interesting and probably not talked about enough because I, I, it, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh, because they're they're compared so much with Joy Division, and I Which think is that bullshit. <laughs> I think there's some degree of accuracy to that, but I th- I think it's more that that scene in general I think was a bit too derivative of just that era of music in general, and not it, and it's not like a specific artist or a specific you know it's not a specific artist that's being ripped off right. a lot it's like kind of just in general because when i hear some of their fucking guitar lines um i just instantly think marquee moon by television like right. the the beginning guitar lines of that song just seem to show up like over and over again in terms of style like in other bands of that scene of annoying i guess to me because it's like there are actual guitar solos in uh in television's album like there's some pretty like freaking uh challenging and interesting guitar playing uh but it seemed like what a lot of um the post-punk revival scene took out of that was just like oh we're just gonna do you know it's all rhythm and it's nothing else and that's fine but it became almost a cliche to the point where like i don't know if you've ever seen the metallica documentary some kind of monster oh you bet i have but yeah there's a scene where like lars ulrich is talking to kirk hammett and he uh lars is like i think the guitar solo as we know it has kind (laughs) of you know passed by and and kirk was extremely upset because that's like his role in the band and he's like, this, no, if we don't put guitar solos in this, it's going to be totally trendy to this time because I think that's a trendy thing. And, like, to an extent, I think he's right. It, it it's was so, a trend of the time. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, I have two things. One, um, I think you're absolutely right. And, th- and I think this is a fun, like, dichotomy between the two of us because, like, when I listen to television, I'm like, you know, I don't love the solos so much. I wish it was more. I'm I'm like a rhythm guitarist, so like this is totally me, my thing. But like, you know, I wish it was mostly just like focusing on the cool, interesting like rhythm guitar parts. And so when bands started doing that, I got really excited. Um, although it definitely got played out. Um, yeah, I think there's an intentionality that people lose. I think mm-hmm. you know, even the Strokes, there's like kind of a, a Swiss watch like lockstep thing they're doing. And of course, Interpol have these textures, but a lot of people are just like doing it to do it and mm-hmm. Interpol are even guilty of this eventually um the other thing is can i after 25 years uh get off my chest my my issues with the joy division comparison oh go for it thank you i've been waiting for so long for this Interpol don't sound anything like joy division i feel like a lot of people treat joy division as sort of like a um shibboleth for post-punk like that, it, when I, if I'm going to define post-punk, I'm going to say, oh, it's just Joy Division. You sound like Joy Division. When, if you've ever listened to Joy Division, they're kind of just a weird punk band. Like they have a couple songs, you know, your Disorders, your um, She's Lost Controls, uh, your Atrocity Exhibitions that sound like kind of like weird and different and kind of chilly. But for the most part, like they're a punk band with a weird producer. Um and like Interpol is much more taking after like kind of the more atmospheric, um, you know, dreamier sides of post-punk. I, I 
to me, I feel like they take a lot from, like you said, television or the chameleons, which are like very two guitar focused bands. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like what happened is a lot of people heard Paul Banks's voice, which is similar to Ian Curtis, um, although they, they use them differently and was like, well, what's post-punk? It's Joy Division. That's the only post-punk band we know and just went nuts with it. And it frustrates yeah. me to no end because when Interpol came out, I wanted to hear bands that sounded like Interpol. I really liked the sound. Um, and when I was looking for those bands, Joy Division wasn't one of them. Like it was acts like uh, television, the chameleons, you know, a, a few also ran like factory records bands. Like it's just, I don't know. I hate the music journalism industry sometimes. Yeah. I mean the, the Interpol sounds like joy division thing has become kind of a cliche. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I never was super into joy division enough to, to make that comparison, but it, I never, <laughs> to me, like the, the thing that jumped out to me was like the television thing with the guitars, but I don't know. I, I, I think that like uh, the the one comparison you can make is that they are kind of like Joy Division was a band that had kind of a a star and you know like a rock star uh, element to it at least in retrospect maybe because and in post punk the whole, by yeah. definitions of post punk terms yeah for sure yeah and I think that was you know that's something that self-consciously that Interpol is trying to participate in <laughs> and one of the videos I think it's for uh maybe NYC or PD I can't remember which video Paul Banks is wearing sunglasses indoors which I don't want to knock that because I literally do that so is it um, obstacle one yeah yeah it's obstacle one that's it yeah yep. which is but a yeah video. <laughs> yeah we'll get to the videos but um well, it's up to you now to turn on the bright lights <laughs> with regards to this album. <laughs> because like, like I said, I can't fucking stand these lyrics. And um, I think I've kind of, as I've learned more about this band and this scene, um, I don't like this album as much as I used to. We'll just say that. I think that's that's extremely fair. I will say this is not a defense of the lyrics, but something I will say about Paul Banks as a lyricist. I think that Paul actually has a really good sense of rhythm and cadence. Um, like he really knows like what, how to like put syllables together and hit them in a way that like sounds good. Like on a sonic level, I think he's a good lyricist. I think he's very bad at finding the words to fit those rhythms and cadences. <laughs> Um, in fact, I think that's why a lot of the lyrics are awkward is because he has a cadence he has in mind. Um, it's not, it, and to me, it's not even just that they're awkward because it, the it's, fact that it, the, they're, they're literally bad beyond being awkward, but yeah, like the, the fact, the fact that the lyrics are awkward and stupid sounding has become kind of a meme in itself. Like I remember there was an article, I think it was in Stylus magazine, making fun it's called the top 10 worst lines in interpol's for first album that i remember reading and then there's another like village voice article that was examining interpol's lyrics 10 years after turn on the bright lights and it's kind of like a, a <laughs> that piece is actually pretty funny it's like it's it's like fake defending the lyrics while also still making fun of them but i've also seen people defend the lyrics i i think with like joy division with like the joy division thing it's the thing that comes up uh, more, but I think it's uh, they're far less defensible in that way. The the um, 
yeah. yeah again the only defense uh, the defense i have is not of the lyrics themselves the defense i have is that i think i like paul banks as a singer and i think he's very good like he's a he's like a lifelong hip-hop fan and so i think he's sort of like ingrained this idea of like how rhythm can work uh vocally in a song he's just yeah one really bad at finding words to fit those rhythms because and that's why a lot of the phrasing is awkward and two generally a bad lyricist like i think on a meta level there's something like appropriate about the fact that interpol makes sex sound very unsexy yeah i mean that's not intentional yeah i mean that's what i was going to say like some of these lyrics are just straight up gross like i I mean we can talk to extremely gross we can talk about Obstacle 2 when we get there, but I think that song <laughs> is, is the biggest culprit. I think um, Obstacle 2, even as a teen, I was like, that and Stella, even though Stella's like maybe my favorite Interpol song, that and Stella, even as a teen, I was like, what? Like, this is, I thought it was gross as a teenager, which I think says a lot. Um, so this 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 pitchfork review which by the way was very positive on this album uh mentions it says banks's words can be downright laughable on paper and are often sung as if written out in all caps with no punctuation yep. which is goes to another thing about how he sings the the lyrics which i know apparently according to meet me in the bathroom he was self-conscious about and the rest of the band was like whatever they sound fine um but yeah, the way he sings it is all in kind of one way. And I will admit in uh, whenever I heard this album, I don't know, 2003, 2004, I, d- I didn't really listen for lyrics as much. So I, it didn't, I didn't really notice it or think about it. I think I was more kind of where you are with, with music. But I think <laughs> these days I tend to listen to lyrics more and, and it just it's, it's hard to ignore. And it's hard to ignore just the way that he sings can kind of be grating, especially after so many songs. I mean, I think that's my biggest complaint about this album is mm-hmm. the uh, the fact that just the sonic palette and the way that things are sung and, and, and it all kind of just, there isn't, it's a little bit one note. Um, it's, it, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think, yeah, and that one note either works for you or it doesn't. I think one of the things that, I that I think makes the one note thing work sometimes like really well for me I, it always kind of works for me but I think where it's used well like I think in a compositional sense is in something like NYC where you have a lot of counter melodies happening from this same like one note voice and so when it's a very similar tonal instrument it feels more cohesive to have that many counter melodies going than if it were like two or three different singers um mm-hmm there's a couple of Bob Pollard songs where he does that too. And it sounds really good. Um, Like, so I think, I think there are ways to use that voice. Well, I think generally I like it fine. Again, I think on a rhythmic level, I think the vocals are great, but it's also, I can understand people getting tired of Interpol because there isn't a lot of variation. And when it does vary, I don't think it works. Yeah. The softer songs, I don't know. I mean, we can get there. We'll get there. But uh, I think I think this f- album, one of this album's like biggest problems, is that it starts so strong and then has such a very saggy middle. Yeah, I think I th- I think the ending is the end of the album is my least favorite part, to be honest. But the middle is is not great either. Yeah, I don't know. Well, uh, the first song is untitled, and apparently this was the band's. Uh, opening song on tours did you ever see them on tour actually 
I did. Uh, okay. When, uh, around the Antics era, and they did open with Untitled. Well, there you go. Yeah, they put this on the album because they just needed a song to open the shows, and so this was kind of their opener on their first album. Um, so yeah, I, lo- I love this song. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a very cool idea for an opener. I think it's a really great showcase. Um, for the more melodic ways that uh, the rhythm section works, and where where the next song kind of shows them really kind of in a very chaotic and interesting place. I think Untitled is a very good like melodic showcase because it's it's one of those things where one of the hallmarks of a lot of post-punk is using bass as a lead instrument and guitar as texture. Um, and Interpol doesn't always necessarily do that, but Untitled I think is very much one of those kinds of songs where the guitar is texture and the bass is the lead instrument. <laughs> I think that's true with a lot of their their songs. Um, but yeah, the the effects, I don't know. <laughs> this is going to be a corny comparison, but I I think that like reverbed out guitar, it just makes me think of the edge a little bit. Well, I, I think, well, and I think the reason is because it's, it's not as much reverb as it is a lot of delay. <laughs> yeah. Which is more of an edge thing. Um, it's, it's specifically a dotted eighth note delay, which is a very edge like U2 thing. Um, so it is hard to avoid that comparison when somebody's like stamped a kind of delay so hard. This song does do a thing that I think is interesting. It it kind of feels like it arrives in the middle of the song. It mm-hmm. it feels like it starts in the middle of the song. You know what I mean? Like the lyrics are kind of, <laughs> um, they're kind of fragments. Like it, it just starts by saying, I will surprise you sometime. I'll come around or it's something like that. When you're um, Best lyrics when on the al- on the album for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean th- those lyrics don't offend me because they just you know it it works fine. I don't know. It just it feels like it arrives at the middle point of their music. I feel like it does uh, a pretty good job of announcing what the band is. And also, you know, you got the 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 guitar with the heavy delay on it. Pretty simple riff. You got the 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 more active drums like the drumsticks that go like. Like to when they kick in, um, it's, it's funny because it's also like after that, like it's one of the more like kind of straight ahead drum beats. It's very much like just like kind of kick and snare that then like kind of explodes at the end, mm-hmm. where he starts adding a lot of like syncopated like hi hats and snare stuff. Yeah, and as with a lot of Interpol songs, the bass line kind of carries the the melody more heavily. Um, and and you have the guitar kind of accenting it. I do like the delayed, like there's guitar riffs that go, you know? Yeah, like, the, the little slide, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope people who listen to this podcast enjoy my sound effects, because... I'll make sure to leave them in with these samples. <laughs> Oh man, uh, I know people are going to be so annoyed by that, but I don't have much else to say about the song. It's a good opener. Um, the lyrics are mostly ignorable. 
Yeah, this is this is going to be, I think, especially one of those things where as we go throughout, I'm like, I, I, I just don't hear lyrics usually. <laughs> um, ironically, as as a writer, I don't hear lyrics usually, which is why most of these songs don't annoy me, with the exception Fair of enough. like when we get there. I've, I've I've often said like lyrics have to be extremely bad for them to actually actively ruin a song for me and. I think it shows how low that bar is that there's only like a couple songs here that get that bad for me. Um, okay. And we'll get there. Uh, but yeah, the next song is obstacle one. This was one of their, their big songs. And I think it's a, you know, it's a, a announces a lot of the strengths of the band and also um, a lot of the signature bad lyrics. But uh, yeah, it starts out with a, a pretty simple riff and then we we get the the marquee moon <laughs> uh, guitar <laughs> the um, yeah. this is the song that really you know made me be like wow they sure like television don't they <laughs> the context is kind of is different though in a way that i think is interesting because the you know marquee moon is such a locked in like grooving song mm-hmm. you know like that that bass and drum combo is like a real like almost not not like funk but it's almost like a motown like r&b groove they have going on um that really like locks down the song here the guitars are very locked the rhythm section is going nuts I love the rhythm, yeah, especially the part the 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 bass. Uh, Carlos Stengler goes boo doo 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 doom, and then the drums go boo doom boo doom. Yeah, and it, like, they hit that kick like he hits that kick so rapidly, and then there's like hi hats coming like never when you there's not a constant hi hat like there usually is. The hi hats are just coming in every so often in these weird syncopated accents. And, and yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That moment alone, like where, where that baseline part with the drum part is like maybe my highlight of the album, to it's be honest. It's so good. And it, it, I think it says, I mean, as a kid, I guess I wasn't as locked into like how rhythm works in song as I am now as a rhythm guitarist and musician, but it didn't point stick out to me as much at the time as it does like now is just like such an incredible, and I think it's what makes the rest of the song work because there's a roiling energy to obstacle one that isn't in in really any other interpol song it feels like Mm. actually kind of angry and about to fall apart in a way that a lot of interpol is much more composed yeah well i mean if you compare something like the strokes which it's it's really hard to not compare it to the strokes just because of the time and place but also this song has you know distorted vocals in the same way that like a lot of the strokes songs had these like distorted vote apparently paul banks like wanted them recorded that way so that they could not be made not distorted right because <laughs> he didn't want his voice to to not sound distorted um uh, understandable I, I i get that way you know <laughs> yeah I, I mean they work um but um the strokes it's 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 more like cool or whatever you know it's like we're we're being cool um whereas this it sounds more paranoid <laughs> like it does um yeah and i think there's an element of especially like let's say new york city in the wake of 
of 9-11 and all that. I know these songs were written before that. Um, but there's a sense in which I it, it kind of uh, captures an, an ambient void of New York, which is unfortunately coming back of, of paranoia and uh, disarray. Um, and I think this song does it really well, especially um, at the end part where the the guitar riff changes and he's mm-hmm. he starts singing she packs it away which it's i actually, don't know what that uh, means it's actually she puts the weights oh okay she puts the weights into my little heart and then she goes in my room and she tears it apart um, what, yeah i'm talking about like the very last part of the song where he goes she packs it away no he, he, he's just repeating she puts the weights. oh she puts it away okay she puts okay. the weights yeah oh okay okay but yeah, um, mm-hmm. some lyrical highlights include uh, her. Uh, wait, sorry, I'm gonna look this up uh, so I can make sure to get this right. Um, oh yes, she can read. She can read. read. She can read. She's bad. Yeah. Okay. And um, I used to oh, think it was she the... can read. She's red. Which she's communist. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the stabbing yourself in the neckline, which certainly makes itself known. Um, I like I that ab- line. I like okay. that line. Um, and I'll tell I'll tell you why. I think there are some cases where unusual phrasing helps to accentuate a violence or an impact of a line because you don't know how to hear it or because it's an unexpected way of saying it. And I think you, you go stabbing yourself in the neck feels more visceral because of the way it's said um, or because of that <laughs> phrasing. Like, I think it's, if, yeah. if if we take it in the context of Paul Banks as a lyricist, like, it's hard not to avoid that it's, like, it's dumb, like, everything else he does is dumb. But if, like, a different lyricist put the line, you go stabbing yourself in the neck in the song, I think uh, I would love it. It's certainly a, a memorable lyric. And then, of course, there's the famous, her stories are boring and stuff. She's always <laughs> calling my bluff. That's one of those things where it's like, like I said, like he's he has a cadence he wants to fill, but he doesn't have the words to fill it. Like anyone would just say her stories are boring. Um, he says her stories are boring and stuff. When we get to Roland, anyone would say just my friend is from Poland and has a beard. Yeah. Paul Banks says, my friend is from Polem, and uh, he has a beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get that he's kind of trying to do a thing where it's like the, the narr- it's like an, an unreliable narrator thing, maybe. Because uh, there are other lines where he adds, like, I think, and, uh, and you know, like things like that, that, you know, theoretically they add more I- ambiguity to the line or, you know, it, it's coming from a specific narrator, but it, it just, it, it doesn't work. I, I, I also think that's giving him too much credit. I think he's literally trying to fill a syllable. You might be right. He's like, I need two more syllables on this line. I'll add an uh or an I think. But yeah, Obstacle One, I, I, I think is one of the band's uh, highlights, I would say. Oh, it's so good. I love this song. Um, and then we get to to NYC, which is also one of probably their strongest uh, songs and most identifiable songs. It's it's, um, it's a yeah. it's a mode of slow song that they're really good at and don't do enough. Where it's kind of shoegazy, dream poppy kind of song. You know, they really push the reverb on this one. 
Yeah, I think there's an organ or something. Like, there's a keyboard parts being there, played, which were played by uh, Carlos Dangler. There's actually, like, synths on a lot more of this album than I thought. They're just kind of buried in the mix. Yeah, well, you know, synths were still kind of... <laughs> like, like, cheesy 80s-sounding things were still kind of hated at the time. Right. So it's, you know, the way it was snuck in in a way that still makes it sound, you know, heavy or whatever. Which is kind of clever. I don't know. It, it it helps the sound of this album, actually. I think there's piano in one or two songs, too, that you wouldn't necessarily uh, readily hear. Well, in, um, in, in Obstacle 1, there's like a chintzy... Not, not a chintzy, but like a very, like, glockenspiel keyboard sound mimicking the guitar line on the right ear mm -hmm. like it's that that's kind probably of thing. just a, it's little yeah it's probably just add more texture yeah mm -hmm. but um so yeah this has a nice um uh like shoegaze type post i'd say like they kind of do have a post-rock vibe too the tremolo guitar leads are very post-rock supported me for a long time somehow I'll, yeah, I'll drop it. and the <laughs> I I'm, get, not, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm cutting that. Oh well, you just did, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, there's this this it's there's a swelling to the texture of the guitars. It takes like front stage in a way that usually like the rhythm section does more. So even though the rhythm section is still you know very very solid, um, and of course this is the song. With the famous line, <laughs> subway, she's uh, a porno. the subway she is a porno, and boy does it, uh, boy is that line. It, it's like it's amazing because there are so many things you could say about uh, New York to the point where it becomes like a, a cliche, and it's like it is amazing to me how he managed to say nothing with that line. Well, and also just like again, you could just say the subway is a porno but he has to fill two more syllables and it's the same same thing with like the pavements they are a mess like yeah that it's like i like i get it new york is dirty okay it's it's not a new observation which I don't I mean, know. Like, even wasn't really that like that's post giuliani isn't it yeah, but it's it's still dirty i mean new york's a, a dirty city yeah I mean, as someone who lives here, uh, weird meaning now, like I said, 20 year cycle stuff coming back. I mean, we're recording a day after a fucking mass shooting on the subway, which yeah, is Jesus. an and a, a wave of crime specifically on the subway uh, in the last few months, which is really unnerving because I like trains and I don't like cars and I want to take the subway. So, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, thankfully this album says nothing of value about... <laughs> nope, not a damn thing. <laughs> ...about that. I don't know. I mean, the general atmosphere I get, like like I said, there's this general atmosphere of like uh, urban... Um, I don't want to say urban decay because that's probably not right, but like... Um, it's it's sort of it, like urban ennui almost, like... Yeah, asphalt jungle kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that that does happen in this song that I really really love, 
when they do it and they don't do it enough in my opinion are the vocal counter melodies like when you get to the end and you have just like sounds like my brain loves vocal counter melodies generally but that especially like sounds gorgeous Um, yeah it works i always thought he said the new york kid i always thought he was calling himself a new york kid no don't you understand that's what the nyc of the song stands for it's new york cares oh well i mean they certainly were i don't know the Regardless of anything that you could say about the post-punk revival scene, i.e. that it's full of self-promoting assholes, um, uh, it definitely like was a thing that was happening, and it's hard <laughs> to ignore. It had it had a huge impact on the musical culture of the time. And one of thing, the city, so. one thing you can say about New York post-punk, it happened. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> Okay, so now we get to PDA, which is their their new slang, I guess you could say. It is. I do, I do, I do. the The drum, the drum, like part of this song is like stuck in my head. Like I rip it off a lot because it's like so locked in there. It is like if I I'm at a drum kit, I will play the drum part to PDA. That's that's what I know. This song also does the thing obstacle one does well. It will it it kind of with the extended post rock outro. <laughs> yeah, well, it it. <laughs> It starts off like right off and it also kind of has that like chugging guitar that uh, there's a sound of like ambiguity and slight paranoia to it that is hard to um, just because of all these kind of rhythmic elements happening at once and the fact that the vocals aren't really like in the lead, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like they're sort of like roiling under the surface kind of thing. Um, And then there's like the the bridge I heard the bridge, the part between like. This, you're so cute when you're frustrated part I really Ugh. love I know I know we'll get there but I love like the kind of dual guitar parts happening there which are, you're sick you <laughs> sorry go ahead <laughs> I know I'm just walking right over these things uh but those, you're so okay go yeah you're so cute when you're frustrated terrible. uh but that those guitar lines the way they like mesh together is so gorgeous and like like it's something that really inter- only Interpol does very well. Um, and it's my favorite thing they do with their guitars, and they don't do it enough, but I love it when they do. Anyways, you were saying about the yeah, terrible the, lyric. Uh, well, the, <laughs> that lyric is bad, but you're so cute when you're sedated is, is worse. Gross. It's so bad. <laughs> this is why I have such a adverse reaction to this whole scene. Which is like a, anyway. a, an image or a, a vibe he comes back to a lot of just like, unconscious women <laughs> um 
Yeah. Well, and the fact he dated a model, so that's interesting. Um, cool. But um, uh, in the uh, Pitchfork Rescored review, they mention this specific line, uh, and uh, the author, Jillian Mapes, mentions thinking that sleep tight, grim right, we have 200 couches where you can sleep tonight was one of the dumbest lines that she'd ever heard. Personally, I kind of like that we have 200 couches so you can sleep tonight. And I don't know why um, why that, like that lyric is one that stuck out to me when I first heard it, but- um, it, It's hard to miss, yeah. May, maybe as someone who slept on a lot of couches, um, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, I don't know. I don't actually mind that specific line. No, I don't really either. I, I, I think on this album, calling out that line as one of the worst is- missing the forest for the trees i think oh yeah (laughs) far and away um but pda yeah pda was their single and i think um apparently they apparently uh paul banks was kind of uh reticent to put the song on the album uh because the lyrics he wrote like as an nyu undergrad uh, which I get, like, like I said, uh, all the members of this band were really young, except for Sam Fogarino. Um, but here's what I'll say as somebody who continued listening to Interpol, like, yes, oh my gosh, they were so young. Um, his lyrics never got better. Uh, yeah, and also, I wrote better lyrics in college, and I did not write very good lyrics. No, 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 exactly, yeah, I wrote terrible lyrics, and they were still better than this, but even then, like, he's been writing lyrics for, like, 25 years now, and they've never... They, they're occasionally less directly embarrassing, but they've never gotten better. Mm-hmm. He still writes like this. <laughs> but yeah, so they put it on the album. It was their single, kind of a, a signature song for them. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, As somebody who's only heard the album as its own thing, uh, it I don't, it doesn't stand out you know so much above like uh obstacle one or some of the other ones no but i was i I was really excited when it came out because nothing that was you know i I was really tuned into like indie music at the time and nothing was really sounding like it Um, that's true you know it reminded me the the song i could think of that was closest to it would be like 1979 right by smashing pumpkins which was ages ago oh yeah it does kind of sound like 1979 yeah you know they have similar uh things they were drawing on so when that because that video came out a little before the album uh, and I think I saw it on a Yahoo front music front page, which is probably how I discovered Interpol now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, I think this is the one with the, oh, such a dated fucking video. Which, that that video style, which was so of the era. I think on had the yeah, same thing. Yeah, fucking arcade fire ass. I think there's a Wolf Parade video that looks like that. There's the Modest Mouse float on video just, that looks like that. I think like it was just that. this one director that they were all using who only did the one thing. Oh, that's such a day. Like, I'm sure at the time it looked cool. It's like, it's it's kind of the, the video signifier of like alt. You know, this is alt and indie at the time. I'll say but this. It, it looked yeah. cool in PDA when I hadn't really seen another video like it. Fair enough. And then it stopped looking cool. And going back, it looks kind of cheap and corny. Yeah, it's just so dated to the era. It's so dated. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, next we have "Say Hello to the Angels," and this song is the first song that I'm just kind of like, eh, about. Same. I I've never. There, we're we're in. So I spent a lot of time with this album. So I used to think only the first four songs were good. I spent a lot of time with this album, and I've really come to love the back half or the back third. I've never come to love 
these next three songs or so say hello to the angels i just feel like it just doesn't do anything it's just it's it's like leaning really hard into these staccato guitars but the, like melodically it's not going anywhere the the genius description on this which i i know that genius isn't always accurate with lyrics in fact it was inaccurate with the one that you mentioned earlier in obstacle one but um the description of the song says this song addresses a man's sexual obsession with his lover that's every interpol song (laughs) oh my god uh i think this has one of my least favorite uh lines in any song which the the actual section of the song is pretty good uh but when he says this is a concept. This is a bracelet. This isn't no intervention. Oh yeah, that part no. is pretty good, but the lyrics are terrible. That's some of the worst lyrics on the album. I hate that. I hate that this isn't no intervention. Yeah, again, the phrasing is, as the kids would say, very cringe. Um, There's something about how awkwardly phrased it is that makes it worse. Like, the lyrics are already bad, and then the way they're phrased makes it worse. Um, And that section's great, but the rest of it, I feel like, isn't leaning on their strengths. Uh, there's this kind of like i don't know it's a dated like early this is the first one that sounds like uh has that like a a fairly dated uh i describe everything as herky-jerky but maybe that's accurate like riff where it goes you know where the 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 part where he's he's talking about it's moving to my space yeah it's moving to my space where it goes you know it's like i don't know it's a corny rhythm in my mind and it was like common with like other kind of post-punk revival bands of that era and it just doesn't it loses kind of the mood and goes into this kind of uh i don't know but then of course when it gets to the this is a concept this is a bracelet it goes back into like the kind of moodier interpol thing and it works but yeah that the the like guitar isn't isn't a thing that I am very it, fond of. It's bad. I think the, the 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 thing that damps this song is it sounds the most like the bad Interpol also ran bands of any of the songs on this album. Like this is the kind of this is what happens when you just kind of copied the sound without doing anything with it. Like this sounds like a Kaiser Chiefs song and nobody remembers them. And I I don't think it's very good. And I don't think Hands Away is very good either. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just finishing with Say Hello to the Angels. I think the end of the song, I think it ends pretty well where he, when he says Say Hello to the Angels, it gets a little bit more moody mm-hmm. um, and uh, it kind of closes out well. But the overall song, I'm kind of, eh. but yeah, Hands Away is just kind of like, I don't really get why this is on the album kind of song. I can understand them being like, okay, we need some like tonal variety or even maybe these are all the songs we have. Um but it's just it's there's nothing to it and the thing about so many of the songs on this album is they develop a lot of them have like these extended outros or they'll move in sections you know they build 
Um, mm-hmm. And Hands Away doesn't. Hands Away more or less stays exactly where it is the whole time. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I don't know, the mood is a little bit, it makes me think of, there's a little bit of a Radiohead thing, but like a a very diminishing returns version. It would be like the most boring Radiohead song. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, um, uh, like the Benz, something on the Benz, like um, Bulletproof, I Wish I Was Bulletproof, something like that, Um, which is a softer song that grew on me in a way that this song does not. Yeah. and his voice doesn't really work when he's trying to sing in a more plaintive way, especially when he sings up higher, because he's just not able to sing in a kind of softer and sweeter way. Like, it, it doesn't really work. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I remember even at the time thinking, uh, even at the time that I really liked this album, thinking the song's kind of corny, or, like, especially the singing. Oh, yeah, I've I've never, never enjoyed this song, and I've... I love this album and I've been listening to it for a very long time and never, never liked this song. And then we get to Obstacle 2. This <laughs> Definitely the li- lyrically worst song on the album. I think this might generally be the worst Interpol song. <laughs> kind of like the song for what it is like musically but the the lyrics are so noticeable and so bad and he it's just like the greatest hits of bad lyrics um love is in the kitchen with a culinary eye no no he says i feel like love, love is, is in, in the, the kitchen, kitchen with the culinary yeah. eye Ugh. it's it's he's like putting it's like so is love in the kitchen with the culinary eye or not (laughs) yeah why are you playing so coy (laughs) i think he's making something special and i'm smart enough to try you're not smart enough to try anything i'm sorry that's probably mean but anyway Uh. um just the fact that he says i feel like and i think but then he says kind of weirdly abstract declarative statements afterwards like what does that mean oh yeah i don't know i i think the i think the much like say hello i think this song ends in a cool place i mean it ends in yeah it ends in the um there's like multiple i think uh multiple vocal lines where he's singing Mm -hmm. take my love in those small doses at the same time he's singing a bunch of other words at the same time um and it it has this kind of crescendo effect a little bit which is kind of nice yeah it sounds i I don't know i like that part but it is i think i feel like the core riff of most of the song is not i I just don't like the lyrics are terrible um it comes at a bad place in the i don't know i don't like obstacle too i think it's a very bad song i don't think it's a i don't think it's a very bad song um like the ending section is kind of uh, cool, where he goes, ooh, ooh yeah, or yeah, whatever. I think the ending um, is great, but it takes a while. To I get mean, there. I, I think probably the reason this album has had a lasting appeal is a lot of these songs, even ones that are weak in other ways, like they do have like musical changes mm-hmm. or sections that happen that kind of make it seem a bit more uh, complex and and layered and interesting, um, but. 
a lot of songs do that same trick and I think it is like a little bit of a diminishing returns after a certain point but um, it's not my least favorite song on the album but lyrically it's a, a fucking atrocity it's extremely bad um, Stella was a diver this will be fun because I, I think this is a song you don't like but this might be my favorite song on the album I do actually like this song for the most part the opening line where he's like this is Stella was a diver and she was always di-. it sounds like he's saying it in a fake British accent but apparently he was he just had ice in his mouth and he was just saying things yeah. and the producer's like I'm just gonna put this in I don't know why uh, yeah <laughs> so it's just there I mean it is their song with the like most uh the longest uh title so I guess it I guess in a weird way I introducing it um I don't know it is what it is um but I think this is like their I really love the mood of this album and I think they of this song and I think they sustain it really well I think the lyrics are very very bad but this is a song, this is like one of their songs that I feel like I can really get lost in in a way that I love, whereas a lot of other songs feel a lot more precise. Um, Stella Was mm. a Diver kind of drifts in a really lovely way. Leif Erikson does this too, but Stella Was a Diver really like leans into it. Um, oh, I love this song. This song, like, is at least an attempt uh, to be about something lyrically, and there's some kind of <laughs> story, I guess. And just the the like the imagery of being at the bottom of the ocean, like, kind of works well for the mood of the song. Like, it has a longer, um, it has kind of a like a longer, more plaintive mood, and and it kind of is finally going out of the surroundings of just him talking about being horny for a girl or like New York city. So I think I appreciate that like, um, change in (laughs) setting and mood. And, um, I think it maybe goes on a little bit too long, but it's a, the general like, uh, core of the song, especially goes, he goes, Hey, 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 Mm -hmm. Hey, Hey, Hey. And then, and then and then it goes into the she was so tired and the me was so tired. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. that section is pretty is pretty good. Um and this also has uh, a great bass line, all time bass line where it goes boom 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 boom. You yeah. know, like when the um like the bass jumps an octave, um that really like I think is what makes this song to me. Again, the rhythm section is very propulsive in a way that seems off for the song. Like even the um the drums are playing almost like a, uh, a a swingy marching rhythm on the stair the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rhythm section in in this album is 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 really what makes it. It's it's a big part. Like it's it's a big part of what like it it gives the songs life that I think could be drained out of them. Yeah, and well, you could say that the 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 marching rhythm is almost like. <laughs> 
is almost like splashing water. Yeah. And that the, the boom, 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 boom is like something bubbling up to the surface or something. It's a very textural, atmospheric song, for sure. Um, unfortunately, this one kind of gets worse uh, towards the end. Um, but I don't know. Like, I think it's uh, one of the worst uh lyrics on the 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 whole album uh because like this song has a little bit more of a a serious and like plaintive tone and they manage to like execute it reasonably well and then he goes into well she was my catatonic sex toy love joy diver and it's like damn you just really fucking ruined the mood of this song That off though is when he, when he starts saying right on, <laughs> like she went what down the there fuck? for me right on. Oh yeah, it's so good. Okay, right on. cool. This is like oh well, he had something. Um, but yeah, so for me, um, when I used to listen to this album as a uh, as a teen, this was the last song that I liked. Like I didn't really. I didn't really enjoy the album after this point. Um, and I think I still kind of have that uh, bias coming in, um, that especially the last two songs of just not really, they they just don't grab me. So I like really tried to listen to them, but yeah. But before that we have Roland, which is, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of this song. I like Roland. Roland for me musically is obstacle to working a little better because it's simpler. Like it's trying to capture that like driving straight ahead motion of obstacle one. Um, like I, I don't think it's like a a particularly deep or like masterpiece level song, but I think it's good. I think it's good like album filler as it as it goes. I don't know. It just it feels less um like less musically complex. Like there's less thing. It's more it's of like a straight a straight ahead rock song. And I don't know. It's fine. Um but it doesn't really strike me in the way that something like Obstacle 1 or I I even think Obstacle 2 is musically a better song. This Roland does have the famous <laughs> <laughs> the famous oh look it stopped snowing line <laughs> well and also which is like my friend is from poland and um he has a beard <laughs> <laughs> i just i like the oh look it stopped snowing it's like what is that i don't know that's the thing that's st- that really stuck with me this like old article in stylist magazine it's just like was was trying to like reverse engineer it's like was this guy describing his friend and then he looks out the window and he's like oh look it stopped snowing my, my recollection of reading about this album is that this is the most like 
acknowledge like Paul Banks acknowledged this is him just putting in random shit to fill fill the song. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Not an excuse, but an explanation. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have much else to say about Roland. It's more of a straight ahead rock song. It doesn't really hold me. It doesn't hold me either, but I feel I feel like it would be great for album pacing if the album didn't have like this weird middle section. Um a song like Roland could really help keep momentum. Um, cause it's short and it's not trying to be anything more than it is. Uh, unlike, yeah. unlike the new, which is trying to be a lot more than it is. Yeah. And this is, this is where the album totally lost me as a, it's kind of like, I don't know. I've never liked, um, on, um, fucking remain in light. The, the talking heads album. Oh yeah. I have, I have never liked the overload um the last song on there and it it kind of has a similar thing it's like this very propulsive rhythmic album with this kind of like downer ending um i i will give the new credit like i appreciate it a little bit more now in that like i don't think i don't like the the beginning section very much when it tries to but then the the song tries to expand musically um and and becomes a little more propulsive and interesting I just think with the placement in the album and everything else, this song has just never, never stuck with me at all. Yeah, I think it's I think it's done poorly by its sequ- sequencing, um, and I think it's trying a lot of things that it's not always successful at. Um, you know, you've got your long Cure bass intro. <laughs> too slow and then like the song it leads into is very feel it's it's hard to say shallow but it feels thin um and then i do yeah i i think the climax it builds to is great because there's a lot of dissonance in there in a way that interpol doesn't usually play with there's like a sinister quality to it But it's a lot. It takes a lot to get there, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it builds in a way that makes much sense. I think I think you're right. Yeah, it go, this song definitely goes on too long, um, and I like that they're trying to have a breakdown or whatever, but it doesn't feel earned, right, by the rest of the song. Um, yeah, and then we have Leif Erikson. Another thing of them trying to do like. Uh, imagery of like explorers and all that kind of stuff but it, <laughs> it works a lot less well here for me I, I don't know this is probably my least favorite song on the album with hands away oh I love Leif Erikson I, I can I can see why it would be it's a little slight and it is the last song which puts a lot of emphasis on it I don't know I, I think Leif Erikson feels like the other side of Untitled to me like it is this sort of nocturnal farewell in a similar sound 
in a way that Untitled is more using this sort of dreamier sound as a statement of purpose. I don't know. It just doesn't stick with me. It admittedly, like, um, I at least remember the opening lines of this song in a way that I don't with the new, but, um, (laughs) I don't know. It just, uh, it just, it just slides right past me, I guess. Yeah. I think understandably, I, I, like if, again, I feel like if you haven't like spent a good chunk of your life listening to this album, uh, I think, it's it's a pretty slight song to have at the end. On its own merits, though, I, I, I like it a lot. And I think there is a logic to the atmosphere of this album that I think Leif Erikson as the ending works really well for me as. That was a very convoluted way of saying that. Paul Banks is affecting me. Um, um, and of course, uh, Paul Banks hits you with uh, one of his greatest lines at the at the outro of the song. Her love's a pony, my love's subliminal. Yeah, she says brief things, my love's a pony. Her love's a pony, my love's subliminal. But I love that part musically. Like musically, I think it's great. It's just, yeah, I, I, you know, he says it. He says bad it things. It just washes over me. I, I think, I think, and and I think this is a demerit to this album that um, I tend to really evaluate an album more strongly or less strongly based on like the how they end Mm -hmm. i mean that's not always true but i like strong endings to albums and and this just doesn't doesn't do it for me yeah it's a it's a sleepy end for sure um but yeah that's that's our (laughs) song by song um we can also look at the the pitchfork review um this album has been reviewed twice by pitchfork Indeed. in addition to uh being rescored recently uh in addition to the feature article uh of the story of turn on the bright lights so it's pretty safe to say that uh pitchfork really put their weight behind this album and this is one of their most um kind of this is an album that although like the new york city scene was like very big uh in general and so it wasn't like a thing a phenomena that they fully created it's certainly one that they helped uh grant legitimacy to and push by giving this album a 9.5 two times um only to be rescored unofficially to a seven later which is interesting because I think the funniest thing about these reviews is I think the original review is actually not that annoying and the review of the re-release by uh Matt LeMay is extremely annoying. Yeah, it's very it's a very rare uh example of a restrained pitchfork uh of of old times compared to like what happens when pitchfork has to deal with legacy and hype which it's generally very bad about because it's got a weird sense of hero worship i want to read the opening lines of this one of uh, the the original review by eric carr because it kind of situates it at the point of the discourse which we already talked about a little bit mm-hmm. um 
but it's it's kind of setting your expectations as a as a skeptical uh, pitchfork reader because I think uh, a thing that we've said a lot, a lot of the people who wrote for this site were young, they were music bloggers, and the site definitely kind of trafficked in um, uh, you know contrarianism uh, with some of the big hype bands. So this is already kind of um, you know reacting to the hype around the New York City scene and specifically like the Strokes. Um, so uh, Eric Carr says, as you read this, there are likely a number of people in your midst summoning up all the backlash powers their mortal frames can bear. Those who believe the boys from Interpol to be the latest shock troops in the battle of PR style over artistic substance. And who can blame them after the veritable shitstorm of publicity drummed up by a certain New York City band? Obviously, he means the Strokes. Uh, one that had the audacity to not be the denim-clad messiahs of rock and roll we'd been promised, directing a little skepticism skepticism towards NYC's buzzmongers <laughs> is probably healthy. I like the word buzzmonger. <laughs> Plus, at a glance, Interpol's snazzy suits and expensive haircuts seem symptomatic of a carefully spun image designed purely to separate money from wallets. It's okay to be suspicious. But back up. These guys are not. Ma uh, these guys are on Matador, not RCA. <laughs> yeah, the hypster division of Matador is a guy in a closet, and he's only part time. The spin budget of Interpol wouldn't be uh, even a down payment on Julian Cla Casablanca's designer leather jacket. The fact that these guys see press at all can only be attributed to their diehard contingent of fans, and was p earned purely through legwork and a handful of underpublicized EPs. So you can see they're setting the narrative right here, right now, and being like, hey, this isn't your, your fucking mom's <laughs> New York City band. They're on Matador, which is totally indie. And like Matador had... It's true Matador had like a lot of street cred, but the way that he describes them is pretty fucking comical. Yeah, it is. Like, this is still the label that brought us pavement at that point. Like... I mean, Matador had like qu quite a lot of resources. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, especially in comparison to other labels, and and that would bear out, you know, over the next decade, um, especially. But there's no doubt that being on Matador helped push them um, as a band in general. Um, but yeah, and then he, I mean, he just talks about um, he talks about how this is like you know. Um, he says the visceral punch of the thematic content is backed at every turn by melody among serrated riffs and amorphous percussion discussing the highs and lows of bright lights would be splitting hairs given its consistency but a few tracks stand inches above the others he talks about NYC and Obstacle 1 um, but yeah I mean I, I think there's undoubtedly um, I can understand why people even like me who might have been skeptical of the scene at the time could pick this one band out and be like well they're not like that because you know x and y um i i don't know if uh time and history bears that out though no. i don't think so um but yeah and and i think the more annoying thing is there was a huge uh effort to cement that legacy with the 10th anniversary edition where they gave it a 9.5 as a reissue and um, the uh, Matt LeMay's review, which I find incredibly annoying, <laughs> um, he says, on the surface, the story of Interpol's 2002 full-length debut, Turn on the Bright Lights, is almost annoyingly out of, of its place and time 
Four guys meet in New York, start a band, make tightly wound indie rock jams that sound great at your favorite mid-gentrification Williamsburg bar, signed to a renowned independent label. The rest is history. But the early aughts New York of Turn On The Bright Lights is not the young, vibrant, impossibly cool place of cultural myth. It is a darker and more complicated place, fraught with disappointment and disconnection. It is a crushingly real place, rendered in such vivid emotional detail that it rings true even to those who have never set foot in the city. The stellar 10th anniversary reissue documents the process by which a handful of pretty good songs become a truly great album, making it uh, painfully and unequivocally clear that Turn... On the bright lights is the sum of its players, not its influences. Um, I mean, there are some good observations there, but it's just uh, it it does the the similar thing the first review did of like trying to set the narrative and set expectations. It's like, look, I know why you might feel this way, but here's why this is great, which is just so funny because they they went they ended up going back on it and giving it a a 7.0 you know unofficially i think context is important though because it's like at this point we interpol had fallen apart you know carlos d had left the band um the last two albums were pretty bad um so after like so this is coming from a place of this band that we were all really excited about and had a couple really great albums we thought had a lot of promise turns out had no promise and are now like about to be like kind of erased from history more or less like most indie bands like one hit wonder indie bands do um so there's almost a sense of like restaking a claim here um onto the legacy of this band which is sad (laughs) in retrospect uh, it seemed like it seemed like a lot of there was a lot of energy devoted towards them doing that in 2012, and that is not there anymore yep. <laughs> uh, with the current uh, people who write for it. Um, any which is it's fine, but it is interesting to think about. There are so many bands, hype indie bands that haven't stood the test of time that Pitchfork has put their weight behind. It's kind of weird to think about why this is the one that they decided to like, you know, give a demerit to. And I honestly, I just think some of the lyrics are into fucking fensible. They are into um, And I think that probably contributes to that, especially like we didn't even mention the creepiest fucking lyric on the entire album uh, for me, um, which is an obstacle to where he says, I'm going to play with the braids that you came here with tonight. Oh yeah, that is, that is. That's not great. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one. I think Pitchfork specifically did that to piss me off. Uh, that 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 rescore. But I I, I want to Jill, Jillian Mapes. I want to buy you a, a fucking beer or whatever because I completely agree with what she's saying. Although um, I think the two hundred couches line is fine. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, I think there's a couple things. So one, like. I work with like a lot of like younger musicians, like Gen Z musicians, and none of them know who Interpol is. Um, this is absolutely in a way that people still know who, who like the Strokes are. So this is not a band that, in, in a lot of ways, this is not a band that has stood the test of time. I think this is ours. Are the Pitchfork generation, the Ots generation, are the ones who remember them. And even then, how many of us, besides like me specifically, have thought about them much? in the last decade. So I think I think that's a big part of where like stuff like that rescore comes from. It's like what happens to the institutions we thought were so much bigger than they are. 
I, I think it's interesting, too, because in the same article, they bumped up uh, Room on Fire by the Strokes to a 9.2. Um, and it and it feels like the Strokes have had, like, a weird um, kind of resurgence. I'm sure them, like, playing Bernie rallies and stuff right. uh, helps with their image. Um, but they're viewed, it seems like, more fondly in retrospect that a band like Interpol is. And I guess... Maybe it's just because there's a side of the strokes which seems kind of like a little bit more fun and less pretentious, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, is not the case with Interpol. You mentioned uh, a new song because they have a new album, The Other Side of Make Believe. Uh, and they have a so new bad. song called Tony. And yeah, and the video. This is my huge pet peeve of like aging indie rock band cast a bunch of like attractive, mm-hmm. diverse children, <laughs> you know, teens yep. and people in their 20s to do dances to kind of like make the song seem <laughs> younger and hipper. <laughs> Not like this just like leaden, uh, uh, just depressing. But even then, thing. like the whole vibe of that video is so like American apparel circa 2004 that. Like, it still feels dated to me. <laughs> I mean, we talked about indie music being advertising core, but, like, aspects of the song, that song really hit me as, like, oh, this could be an ad. Absolutely. Like, this video kind of looks like a fucking ad. It's so bad. Inter- Interpol, of like, I, I buy every new Interpol album, and they're always bad. Um, oh. Um, long, I feel like what, like, a Sonic fan must feel like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, there have been some uh, decent Sonic things. There are, lately. and that's the hope with Interpol. Every time, I, it's it's. I would compare it to like a Weezer <laughs> type. Oh thing. God, am I one of them? I I am, aren't I? <laughs> I mean, the first two Weezer albums are the ones that everyone likes, you know. So I think Green Album's okay, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I God. So that that should say like going back through this whole uh, episode. If as far as my opinions go this is the kind of person those are coming from. <laughs> so I totally understand. I mean, I, I think I was probably more generous to this album than um, I thought that I was going to be just because of my general reaction of dislike towards this scene. And just like <laughs> feeling like less fond of, um, or, you know, like seeing behind the curtain mm-hmm. and, um, figures like Paul Banks and Carlos Dengler and it just it's it's hard for me to to really get behind it and I think that has hurt the band in in a in a visible way in a way that something like a band like clap your hands say yeah (laughs) which Pitchfork also put their weight behind I think probably objectively like less interesting (laughs) musically um but uh they're also not like in the spotlight making an ass of themselves in the way that exactly. Paul Banks and Carlos D have been so Yeah, there's a lot to be said for know. just being quiet. <laughs> yeah. So I I think that part I mean cuz the same article um they they knocked down this the score of Grimes's album from 2020 and it's like that's a recent article and it's clearly just because of her perception. Yep. Um, in the public eye. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a great album, but you know, I, <laughs> like, why else would you yeah. do it a year later? I mean, I think a part of I, I'm pretty sure the way that album worked is that they asked uh, artists if you could re-review any album, what would it, or writers, their writer staff, if you could re-review out any mm-hmm. album, what would it be? Um, so it's more of like I, that. That's a more uh, feels like a more writer centric 
article than like a pitchfork as a voice centric article um mm -hmm. which is rare for them now these days <laughs> i mean it it is interesting i kind of liked just the idea of <laughs> If nothing else, just because it gets people talking, and especially the Interpol, like having docking their album to a seven, uh, which is kind of <laughs> the score that they give everything these days, right. um, is a symbolic thing, and it definitely uh, was probably the spiciest take of the whole article. Um, and I was looking for reactions to this rescored article specifically to see what people said about the Interpol um thing and it you know people seem pretty mixed some people were like oh i can't believe they did that and other people are like well that was well deserved you know um i did see some interesting observations just about pitchfork in general and things that kind of <laughs> are are what this podcast is is here to talk about this is from the let's talk music subreddit this person uh Odiaiba Bay says, I'm not really sure how fruitful this is in, as an endeavor. When taken out of context of what Pitchfork used to be, those savage, judgmental, hipstery, jumbled, strident reviews are what made them who they were. It is notable that most of the reductions here are post-2010. Um, okay, blah, blah, blah. It says, Pitchfork used to be negative and proudly so, and that's why they became such a big name. An indie kicking against a genuine print media establishment uh, major label that existed at the time. Though their work in the 2000s was responsible for crafting in many ways the image of the imperialist, obscurantist, opinionated music hipster which dominated the 2010s. I would say more more the 2000s than the 2010s yeah. there, but whatever. Um, then they dropped the ball and became uncool when they were acquired by Condé Nast and they now limp along publishing things like this. I think that's uh, a little overstating what they used to be and a little <laughs> understating, like, I mean, there are still some good writers there, but the general context of the fact that Pitchfork used to be a thing that had a... Uh, <laughs> like a, an identity and used to be more amateurish and used to kind of be something that it was native to the internet and was different from the the music publication establishment at the time was definitely part of their appeal and why they became popular and that's they're the establishment now so they don't have that anymore so it's kind of unfortunate for anyone who's working there now to have to like live in the legacy of this website where people just don't care as much anymore because it's so defined by what they did and they're so unwilling to kind of take a stance on anything uh that might be controversial uh these days uh so like, yeah i don't know in a way it, it feels like romant romanticizing a bit of old pitchfork which is why i'm glad this which is why this podcast exists is to fight back against that because it's not like at the time people were like well a lot of this writing is bad and like uh very oh what's the word reactionary yeah very contrarian um like it's bad writing by contrarian teens uh a lot of it has to do with it being internet native but it's like um and i and i do think the conde nast takeover is uh damaging more for like the as a symptom of the uh death of the music blogosphere uh yeah but there's a lot to be said for like uh, why did we read Pitchfork at the time? Um, <laughs> you know, like as a, when I was like a teenager, I was always like looking for other things. Like I, I read a lot of like the quietest and stylist magazine and stuff just to find like things that were, I still read the quietest sometimes yeah, me too, because I didn't like Pitchfork really, but I kept reading it. 
Oh, I mean, I, that was true for so many people. I think it's m- mostly that it was a good marketing thing for them. But the reason why we should be skeptical is, is one, like it was kind of sucking a lot of the labor from these music blogs and bringing them into a situation where most of the writers from early Pitchfork, I mean, I'm sure some of them, it's helped their careers, but for the most part, they weren't really paid much nope. or, or anything at all. Like Pitchfork notoriously like paid nothing. Especially if you're a and, freelancer, like if you're not like a staff. Yeah, and, and given the, the cultural impact this website had and some of the reviews had, and the fact that we are mostly just go back and make fun of some of these reviewers, um, it, it was some of the writing, not not the reviewers in particular. I'll make but, fun of some um, of the reviewers. <laughs> okay. Mark Richardson has a lot to answer for. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think it's uh, it's worth it's worth uh, putting some uh, skepticism their way because like all of these things being subsumed into like larger media um, was kind of the problem in the first place, and Pitchfork definitely played a big role in that Mm -hmm. so and that's what this podcast uh, is all about (laughs) hell yes okay so where does turn on the bright lights rank for you i mean of the three we've done it's still number it's it's gonna be number one and i can't i can't divorce i can't say that objectively because it's impossible for me to divorce it from (laughs) how much of an impact it's had on my life like literally like if you if you listen to any music i make nowadays Whenever we would play shows, people would be like, oh, you kind of sound like Interpol. (laughs) 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 To the point where I want to make that a t-shirt that says, Noiseland, we sound like Interpol. Well, I'm sure you're better than uh, the XX, who was apparently influenced by Interpol. I really don't like them. Anyway. I'll say say this. I write better lyrics than Paul Banks. (laughs) (laughs) Guaranteed. That's the guaranteed. What about you? Where does it rank for you? Uh, it's number three. I, I'm I'm sorry to say. I um, I do. I don't actually hate this album, but it loses steam for me, and it's a little one note. And the the lyrics are hard to ignore. I think there are some really cool elements uh, to this album, and I don't think it's completely derivative of uh, the post punk. It. Uh, or at least I don't think it's especially derivative of the post punk uh, that it's cribbing from because i think that was a general problem of that scene i i don't think it's <laughs> and a, not just interpol i don't think it's a copy i think it is an uh, uh using those tools to try and move forward with it or do something different so i i'm not a i'm not a hater but i uh <laughs> but i kind of i think it's objectively a less consistent album than than wilco or the shins um like if i were to be objective about turn on the bright lights i'd probably put it too but i still i think the um i think oh inverted world is a much more consistent album than turn on the bright lights uh and like yeah i'm i'm I, and i'm i don't want to fully <laughs> be like oh i'm all about <laughs> the twee songwriter stuff because that's not necessarily true at all it it's just, very it's a case by case <laughs> in basis. fact i was i was surprised you like the shins <laughs> based on what it's, i know it's, of you it's yeah, it's it's always a case by case basis sure. with me. I mean, I, I the thing is, I like songs. I like good songwriting, so yeah. that is part of it. Same. Uh, um, but so yeah. Uh, so the next episode, we're gonna be talking about a suggestion that Max made. Um, and that is drum roll. You forgot it in People by Broken Social Scene. 
Excellent. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to this. Me um, too. I'm so glad that you suggested this album. One of the first that like you can really say Pitchfork made it and I just am excited to talk about this album for numerous different reasons. I, I um, haven't revisited this album in such a long time, too. Oh, I I mean, a slight spoiler, but I I do like this album, like that album a lot. So, um we'll get to it when we get to it, though. Yes. <laughs> so, thank you for listening to the podcast. It and uh I haven't fully finished um uh but we're going to I haven't fully finished like, you know, with the whole uploading these episodes we're recording this still before the podcast is yet to be public however um it'll be up on libsyn and so please which means it'll be up on itunes or what is it called apple Podcasts now so please rate and review and please share with your friends especially in places like let's say that let's talk music reddit yeah Um, come on fantano heads blow us up (laughs) yeah let's get the fantano heads uh or maybe not (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah um i I know you probably have some cred from your previous podcast so maybe you can i think you know what i think we had one mention on a rate your music like forum post Oh, nice. Uh yeah, Desert Island Discourse. The the that that's how fucking hip we were. We were mentioned on Rate Your Music. Um Well, I think we can upgrade I think we can try and get on we can try and get on Reddit. Yeah, let's get on RMU. Let's go. Or our Let's Talk Music. Yeah. Uh uh, but yeah, um, and like I said, I will try and set up a, an email for the shows where people can send uh, letters or, you know, whatever, because I think that would be a cool idea. So I will say something about that maybe next episode. Yeah. Uh, do we have a sign off? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I was just going to say uh, this has been the Kitchfork podcast. I have been and still continue to be <laughs> uh, your co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I will forever be your co-host, Max Gunn. To, to all the catatonic sex joy divers out there, signing off from Kitchfork. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>